This is a podcast for the creative misfits, the right brain, rogue, or rebellious creatives who don't want to do work and life the way we've been told we have to. It's for anyone who has felt a sense of dissatisfaction with their career or with corporate BS. It's for anyone who has struggled and wanted to find greater purpose, to experience more authenticity, creativity, freedom, and satisfaction in how they live and work. Let's build a new way of doing things. Welcome to episode 14 of the Creative Misfits Club. I'm Jessica. This week's episode is called Eight Things They Tell You Not to Be, and Here's Why You Should Anyway. Now, I don't know if these are all creative and misfit things to be, and I don't know even know if everybody should be them exclusively, but here's a list of things that I personally have come to realize about myself, that I like being these things, and they're actually very innate to me, but they're pretty counter to what the culture and the status quo would tell us is a good way to be. You know, that creaky old paradigm, as I like to think of it, that world would tell you not to be these eight things. But I'm here to advocate that maybe we should be them and to give you permission for doing so. The first is being silly. I think silly is an incredibly underrated quality. I mean, the connotations, right, when we think of silly, we think of something that is frivolous and not so great, right? There's like a negative connotation. But silliness to me is actually, it's like the ability to be goofy. And I think little kids do this really well before that's conditioned out of them. I actually have a very silly, goofy side. It doesn't come out with everybody or all the time, but it's definitely there. And I just think that silliness, being silly at times, doesn't mean that we don't and can't take things seriously when we need to take things seriously. I think to me it just means that we can bring a kind of lightness and levity and playfulness into our lives, which I think has been deadened out of a lot of us, to be honest. I see it in children, but then it gets sort of like squashed out. Kids have this ability. It's like silliness feels to me like blasts of joyful energy moving through and you just let it come out without really a care as to how dumb you look or sound or what people are going to think of you. (laughs) And again, little kids do this so well. So I'm going to advocate that we actually get back in touch with our silliness. The second thing I'm going to advocate that we should be is lazy. Yeah, I know. That word has a really, really bad connotation. But here's what I have to say about lazy. I think it needs to be unpacked because I think the word can be a little mis- construed at times because I think there's different kinds of laziness. Now sure, sometimes laziness can be straight up vegetation dissolving into the couch watching Netflix and eating potato chips and maybe that's not the best way to be. But I think some lazy that we feel is actually a resistance to something that's unaligned. So if you really have kind of like a resistance or an avoidance, of doing things, it will come out as laziness, but actually perhaps what we need to consider is that something about it isn't correct for us or isn't aligned for us. Another version of lazy that I think comes out is when it's a response to when we've actually been doing too much, going too much, pushing too hard, and laziness is actually a kind of counter to that. It's like the body 
crying out for some kind of downtime that it's not getting. And that might come out as, now I just am going to be lazy. But the thing is, like other cultures do much better than we do in the U.S. with this. As far as valuing downtime, like in Italy, la dolce far niente, the sweet pleasure of doing nothing. I mean, you can do nothing mindlessly as like a rotting vegetable, right? (laughs) Like you can do nothing for an entire afternoon and end up scrolling on your phone and hours go by and you're like, wow, okay, I don't even know where that time went. Or you can meticulously do nothing. That's a phrase from John Wineland. I really love that phrase, meticulously doing nothing. Like you can choose for a period of a day or a day or any period of time for a very clear intention to do nothing and really soak up that dolce far niente and have it really nurture you and refresh you if you're really consciously doing nothing. And I think that's a very different kind of lazy than the lazy that we're taught not to be. Another thing we're told is kind of bad to be is alone. I mean, alone could mean a lot of things, right? Simply time by yourself. I think in general, if we have too much time by ourselves, we start to feel like there's something wrong with us <laughs> or like we should we should be doing something. We should be we should be doing things with people. But there's actually a lot of sacredness in alone time. There's a lot of potential in the quietude if we take take it as such to get back in touch with the little whispers that are in our bones and in our intuition and in our the deepest parts of ourselves that want to come out that I think don't come out if we are filling our life up with people time. I mean, the other alone thing we're told not to be is, you know, being alone as in not in a relationship, particularly for long periods of time. But this is a sort of a paradox. I don't think it has to mean that you don't want a relationship if that's what you really want. I think you can absolutely desire that and you can sort of not just learn to be okay with the aloneness, but you can take it as a kind of assignment to sort of feel like, okay, I can desire something, but if I actually never got it, what would I need to do to build my life in such a way that I was really happy, no matter whether I was alone or coupled? Now that's an assignment that can yield some magic. Okay, hit this next one, this thing that you shouldn't be. I am coming to accept the fact that in many ways, I'm kind of a granny. And I'm okay with that. I'm becoming okay with that. I think I may have tipped over the edge when I recently bought vintage tin jello molds in order to make fresh cranberry jello for dessert for the holidays. I might have actually just become my grandma. But you know what? If it makes me happy watching movies from the 1940s and putzing around in my quilted dressing gown and listening to old music and making jello. <laughs> if that makes me happy, I am learning to be okay with it. And it definitely is not what the kids would say is cool, <laughs> but so be it. So this next one, this is a thing that I have relearned to be in the last several years, and that is fierce. So let me first say what I think fierceness is not. Fierceness is not 
getting angry or triggered, and then projecting or hurling that at people. That is very different. (laughs) That's your shit being triggered and taking it out on other people. Fierceness to me, and this is coming from quite a recovering good girl, (laughs) Um, the perfect child complex, as I like to call it growing up. But fierceness to me feels like this lion or lioness quality, which is that there are times when what the highest thing that the moment is calling for is actually to, to push back or to fight back or to call out or to hold a boundary or to do something that's going to displease or upset someone. And it has that quality of, not of the lion feeling threatened and attacking, but of the lion staring you down with this kind of energy of, oh, no, you don't. Personally, for me, (laughs) Fierce Jessica has come back from the dead a bit the last several years. She was sort of left for dead or buried or something. And what's really interesting is that people seem to be in support of Fierce Jessica (laughs) until the lioness is looking them in the face. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I totally support you being, you know, stronger and standing up for yourself and doing all these things that I never did until they're the ones that the lioness is looking in the eye. And then they don't like it quite so much somehow. Okay, there's another thing to be that I think is quite unpopular, quote unquote, and it might, it might seem in opposition to what I was just talking about, but I actually don't think it is. And that is being sensitive and tender. So sensitivity, I mean, full disclosure, I speak this as a person who didn't really realize this or understand this or even know about this until I was well into my 30s. Um, but I'm quite high on the sensitivity spectrum, the natural sensitivity in terms of HSP, highly sensitive person, which is really people who process the physical world, emotional world, they actually process it in a different way. It's actually a processing thing. And I was definitely either directly or indirectly or both given the message growing up that it was a liability to be that way, to be very tender and very sensitive. I have learned that it is actually a superpower and a lot of people suppress that, turn it off, you know, at very young ages. People who fall highly on that sensitivity scale. I've come to believe it's actually kind of a superpower. And it's one that I think is giving us individually, but I actually think it is giving us collectively messages about what is positive, what is evolutionary, what is nurturing, and what is not. And if we could listen to that more, I truly believe Like, I actually think that that kind of tender power is what pushes the world forward. And I feel like I could do a whole podcast episode about this because it's been a real reclamation for me of understanding that about myself and then understanding that it is actually a tremendous gift to be that way and not something to kind of be worked around because the typical world and the typical society in which we live not only doesn't really appreciate those qualities, but is actually, much of our culture is actually counter to them. But I actually think those qualities of sensitivity are almost like a, a harbinger, almost like an oracle. I mean, think about sensitivity in the body. When we have some kind of sensitivity in the body, it's there for a reason, right? It's giving a message. And I actually think that learning to embrace those sensitivities as gifts, it's almost like messengers of 
better ways and more evolutionary ways of being. So another unpopular quality that I think, frankly, I certainly have (laughs) is being slow. So something I've learned about myself, I am very slow when it comes to how I physically move through the world. I'm very fast when it comes to internal things, like internal processing, but the pace at which I actually move physically is just slow. I've always been this way, actually. Like as a little kid, I was just, I just took forever to do stuff. I was the last one eating. (laughs) And everywhere you look in our culture, it would tell you that fast is better. I mean, is there any business left that doesn't tout themselves as a fast-paced environment? I actually don't think that thriving in a fast-paced environment is necessarily a boon. So I really am embracing this idea, this paradigm of slow pace, slow life, fast growth. That's actually how I want to be. And this brings me to the number eight thing they would tell you not to be, but I think we should try it anyway, which is pace with nature. Now I'm a little bit baffled why we seem to have forgotten that nature does not operate at the same pace with the same output year round. And yet somehow we assume that our human pace and our human output should somehow be consistent throughout the entire year. I'm recording this on the darkest week of the year in the Northern Hemisphere in December. And you know, nature slows down, nature hibernates, nature does less. There's an ebb and flow throughout the year and the seasons. And it's a puzzle to me why we don't understand or acknowledge that maybe our bodies want to do the same thing. And I actually think, of course, indigenous cultures did this much better than we do in our modern culture. But remember the fact that we are part of that and it might actually better serve us if we embraced that seasonal cyclical ebb and flow to our pace of life. So at the end of the day, I actually really don't care if you're a granny or you're a hipster or (laughs) you like living on a boat or you want to wear all pink and live in an all pink house. I guess what I'm advocating for here is that each of us figures out what's really you, like what makes you happy and you figure out a way to be that rather than feel like We have to be all these things that that the conditioning told us to be because it would make us good or nice or likable or palatable or hireable or desirable. Because at the end of the day, it takes a lot of work to figure out who we really and truly are. It takes a lot of untangling, not to care so much about what other people think and let that dictate how we live. It takes a lot of courage. It's, it's really actually quite rebellious, right, to live or work in very different ways from the status quo. There's a really great Thelonious Monk quote that says, a genius is the one most like himself. Because when you really come back to that, that true self, it radiates a very particular energy. It's like, to me, it feels like you're back in your unique frequency. And when we start living more and more from there, it's not only does it feel great, but it's actually quite magnetic, but also at the same time, kind of weirdly, you don't care so much about 
doing it for exterior reasons, but you do it because it just feels really right. It's like the youiest version of you. So this is my wish for all of us. Be you for you. Find all the ways and the things and the preferences and the pace of life and all the unpopular things, right, that actually feel really good and do them more and be them more. And don't care what the world or what other people think or what the status quo might tell you about it. I'm not advocating to rebel just to rebel, but I also don't want us to contort, to fit in, to bend or shift or fold ourselves into boxes that don't feel good. So be a genius, be yourself. The world needs more of it. Thank you.